congregation of the Lord. What a black stain is upon the name of Jerusalem. For you see this city, which was the capital of that ancient kingdom of the Jews, was given so much light, so much grace, and so much instruction from the living God. It was the very headquarters of the pure and undefiled worship of God. And yet when the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the King of the Jews, came unto the city of Jerusalem, he spoke in Luke chapter 13, verses 33 and following, it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Indeed, Jerusalem had been the place in which many of the Lord's prophets had been killed. Throughout all the ages, God had sent his messengers to call them to repentance, and they had been visited with various persecutions for their trouble. And now the Son of God, as he enters into this city, prepares for him his own testimony to be sealed with blood and in that way to bring about salvation. And so it was that the city of Jerusalem was visited with a terrible judgment in 70 AD. And there was a terrible slaughter of the people and a destruction of this grace one city, which had killed the Son of God. And yet, this name Jerusalem, or sometimes called Zion, as it is named by the prominent uh, mountain that is beside it, Zion or Jerusalem is also described as one of the names of the true gospel church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3, we read, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord, from Jerusalem, a clear prophecy of the new covenant. Or Psalm 110, verse 2, which is clearly about the Lord Jesus Christ, where it says, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Or to this we may add the verse that we are considering this morning, here in verse 6 of First Peter chapter 2. Wherefore, it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Why would the gospel church of true believers be described as Zion or Jerusalem, given this black mark which the city has against it? They crucified the Lord. Well, Listen to what John Calvin says in this connection. He speaks of Peter's description of Zion in verse 6 in this way. 
Peter says in Zion, because there God's spiritual temple was to have its beginning. That our faith, therefore, may firmly rest on Christ. We must come to the law and to the prophets. For through this stone extends to the extreme parts of the world. It was yet necessary for it to be located first in Zion. For there, at that time, was the seat of the church. I think Calvin makes a very good point. Whatever the black mark that was against Jerusalem, according to the flesh, the Jerusalem of the Spirit, uh, those who are true believers in Christ were yet connected with it. It was here where the Lord Jesus brought about the salvation. It was here that the Holy Spirit was poured forth on those early Christians. And from here that the gospel extended to the furthest reaches of the world. And so it is as we consider this designation of Zion. We are rooted in the glorious works of the Lord in days of old. Not only that of the days of Christ, but also bringing us in continuity and connection with the Lord's work among believers in Jerusalem across all ages. This verse, which we have come to, is central to the Apostle's overall argument. You see how he has been laying up illustration upon illustration doctrine upon doctrine, in order to fortify and strengthen the faith of these Christian pilgrims, whom he is seeking to encourage in the midst of the hardships and afflictions of the Christian life. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, in his manifold excellency and his vital union with all believers, that is set forth here in verse 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I, says God, lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. As we've already considered something of the teaching of Christ as the cornerstone, the previous verse Um, A number of sermons ago, we saw how the cornerstone is the most prominent part of a structure which aligns and strengthens and, um, and beautifies the whole structure of a building. So also the Lord Jesus is, as it were, the linchpin of the entire work of God in salvation. He not only secures the benefits of salvation, but applies the salvation. And so all believers must be joined unto him. I say, as we've already considered this doctrine, which is, again, repeated in verse 6, I wish to especially zero in on these last words as the focus of this sermon. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. We will consider with the Lord's help the believer not confounded. The believer not confounded. And I wish to show three things. First, the stakes. The stakes. Second, the blessing. 
And third, the implications, the stakes, the blessing, and the implications, the believer not confounded. Well, children, I suppose you might be familiar with a story that took place in Jesus's ministry. You see, he was seeking to preach and teach in the synagogues early in his ministry. And as he is teaching there in the synagogue, he finds a woman who has had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. And she is bowed down and bent over and couldn't even lift herself up. This wasn't an ordinary affliction, you see, but a spirit had done this unto her. And Jesus, in a wonderful display of his love and kindness, he lays his hand upon her and looses her from this terrible infirmity. But you might be surprised that the minister or the ruler of that synagogue, he wasn't too happy about this. He is probably leading the worship maybe, and, and there he sees that Jesus is healing one of these women there in the synagogue. And the ruler actually got indignant, angry with Jesus. And we read here in Luke 13, verse 14, he said, There are six days in which men ought to work, and them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Obviously, he didn't understand the law of God too well. If he thought that doing good and acts of mercy were in any way contradictory to the fourth commandment. Very wrong teaching from this one. But the Lord Jesus, you see, he answered him very wisely. He said, thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan doth bound, lo, these eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? A very good logic from the Lord Jesus Christ. You take care of even your animals. Would not God in his mercy see fit to show mercy unto this daughter of Abraham, a precious image bearer of God? We read in verse 17, And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for the glorious things that were done by him. They were ashamed, children. They probably got red beat in their face because they had been doing something wrong. They had been accusing a righteous man when he was showing love and mercy unto the needy. Have you ever got beat red in your face? Have you ever blushed because you were ashamed about something? Maybe there was a time in which you did something you know you really weren't supposed to do, but you thought, well, maybe mom and dad aren't going to see me. But there they are. They see you doing that thing, and all of a sudden you know that you're in big trouble. And there you feel in your heart, don't you? You feel shame. You feel bad because you know what you did was wrong. Well, if you think about that, isn't that kind of strange? There's no other creatures other than human beings, image bearers of God, that blush, that feel shame 
Why is that? Because we have something on the inside, a little policeman, if you will. A little policeman in our hearts that tells us that we are doing something wrong. It's one of the signs of being an image bearer of God. That you have this, a conscience, which testifies against you if you are in the wrong and approves of you if you do right. And this is the word that we are dealing with here in verse 6 of 1 Peter 2, shall not be confounded. You could also translate that, shall not be ashamed, shall be not brought to disgrace and dishonor. This is what we're referring to, something that everyone can understand, everyone desires deep inside, to be approved of by their conscience. Now, because of sin and because of our own pride and our fallen nature, the tendency is for this gift of the conscience to be all messed up. We excuse ourselves sometimes where we ought not. And sometimes we feel shame when really there's nothing that's been done wrong. We're confused and we are distorted and we are marred by the effects of sin. But the great truth of the Bible, also as this truth is applied unto our hearts, is to rebuild the conscience, to fix the conscience, so that we are ashamed about the right things. And so that those things which we ought not to be ashamed for, we are not ashamed of. Really, we need the Holy Spirit for this, don't we? We need the Spirit to apply his word so that everyone would only be ashamed for those things in which God would say they should be ashamed of. Now, ultimately... That glorious and important doctrine, which is most suited to help us understand how and why and whether to feel shame, is that of the great final judgment. Indeed, I would put to you that as you study this whole matter in the Bible of the conscience, and you would examine even your own heart, you would see that the conscience, it functions when it gives us a foretaste of the final day of judgment. When we all stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and give an account for ourselves. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, we read of that great day of judgment. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and everlasting contempt. There is shame and contempt heaped up upon all law breakers. Listen to what the commentator Dr. John Gill says, 
wicked men who lived in a course of sin in this world without any remorse or shame. But when they shall rise from the dead, they will rise with all their sins upon them and with a full conviction of them in their consciences and will be ashamed of them and to appear before God, the judge of all, and will be had in contempt by the Lord, by elect angels, and by all good men. And this reproach shall never be wiped out. You see, the thing about Judgment Day is there'll be no hiding anything. When we do something that's wrong and suddenly we know that a lot of people hear about it, instantly we feel that sinking dreadful feeling in the pit of our stomach. Well, how much more for the unbelieving and rebellious world when they have to stand before the judgment seat and all of the great hosts of heaven, all of the righteous will look upon them with utter loathing together with their God. Hell is described in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, in this way. For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. An abhorring children. That means people will look upon them with a great sense of loathing. And they will look upon them and say, what a terrible, heinous group of creatures that they would rebel against the holy God of heaven and all that they receive by way of the wrath of God and his flaming judgments, it is justly deserved. And the fact that this phrase, the worm shall not die, is in connection with this abhorring. It's one of the reasons why uh, it is most often interpreted as the conscience. Think of a worm gnawing, gnawing on a leaf, and it looks decrepit and it looks uh, completely uh, deformed. And so it is with the worm gnawing and gnawing at the soul, testifying that they have sinned. And so it is also here, except that this worm, this troubled and afflicted conscience, will never receive any relief, any subsiding, no, it will continue to consume and can consume and gnaw and gnaw. And so it is, it is the instrument of much of the torments of the damned. I mean, solidify some of these things by reading a longer section from Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation 20 and verse 11. There John the Apostle writes, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. So terrible is the presence of the divine judge on that great day, that even the heaven and the earth seek to flee away. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, 
which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Where this great court scene is described, it speaks of the books being opened. There is surely the book of God's records as he beholding all people, beholding their evil and good actions, unfolds the book of his perfect knowledge. But surely the book of our consciences is also mentioned here. God will not condemn you without yourself coming forward as your own accuser, as if you are an unbeliever. The unbelieving world, you see, will accuse themselves and testify, Truth, Lord, I have sinned, I have broken your holy law, and I am worthy of hell. They will not be able to deny it for that inner policeman, the conscience, has noted every single transgression. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words... Thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Why is it that I say that Peter is referring to the final judgment? Well, first, that this is the most fitting kind of shame that could be spoken of here. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded, shall not be put to shame. Surely, this would be the most clear kind of shame that could be spoken of to encourage the faith of believers. They will not be brought unto such shame. They will not be placed in that place of everlasting contempt among the eternally damned. Likewise, I would put to you that in that same paragraph, as it concludes in verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation where Christ Jesus returns as judge. This is the focal point. This is that great horizon which we are look at, looking ahead towards. This is what brings context and meaning to everything that we undergo in the here and now. The present is determined by that final end, where it is all leading, whether we will glorify God as a vessel of mercy through our good conversation, our good life, or whether we will be brought to shame. This is the ultimate stakes of what are involved. This great division and this great dividing those who believe shall not be ashamed. Those who are not believers, they shall be ashamed. Isaiah 45 and verse 16, they shall be ashamed 
and also confounded, all of them. They shall go down to confusion together that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. This is the great dividing. And it is all determined by whether we are in Christ. Wherefore it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. If it is a terrible and a fearful thing to think of the damned under that eternal judgment for their sins, how glorious to think of those who are these spiritual stones built up around the cornerstone, connected unto Christ Jesus. Daniel writes of them in Daniel 12, verse 3, And they shall be wise, they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. The glory spoken of here is beyond our understanding. The closest parallel is the brightness of the firmament, the stars in the sky. The righteous shall receive glorified bodies on that day. They will enter into the joy of their Lord. It is this that tunes the believer to that uh, heavenly mindset. It brings us out of our present troubles, our present duties, our present afflictions and temptations, and fixes us upon the world to come. And so it's a very profitable doctrine that's unfolded here. The stakes are high. Let me expand a little bit upon this and now speak of the blessing. How great a blessing is it for the believer to understand that they shall not be confounded, if they are in Christ Jesus by faith, never be brought to shame on that great day of judgment. God the Father is not ashamed of you, believer. Hebrews 11, verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. How do we know that the true believer is not a source of shame to God. It is because they have, he has prepared for them this heavenly glory in the world to come, the city that hath foundations, the building with many mansions. It is this which God has prepared for his elect before the foundation of the world, knowing their sins, knowing their transgressions, knowing their weaknesses, yet he is not ashamed to be called their God. He has indeed appointed them for life and for glory and for salvation. He has chosen them in Christ before the foundation of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son as the mediator, as the redeemer that there would be a full provision afforded them, that 
there would be this chosen, elect cornerstone, chosen in his love to be the one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is that glorious testifier of the love of God. And though he is holy and though he is righteous, yet he is abundant in mercy and long-suffering. And were he ashamed to call us his people, then he would be contradicting his clear word unto us. Not only God the Father, but God the Son, Jesus Christ, the mediator. We read in Hebrews 2, verse 11, for both he, Christ, that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, that is, the believer, they are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus Christ is not ashamed of you, believer. How terrible it is to think how many times you may have been ashamed of him, ashamed to speak a word on his behalf where you hear him being slandered in the community or the workplace or some other public place, where you have been ashamed of his laws and breached them. Even as a believer who has repented, you have fallen into sins and you have defamed the name of the Lord. And you, in that very act of returning unto the vomit of your past life, well, you have shown yourself in some measure that you are ashamed of him in that moment. But Christ even there is not ashamed of you. He knows that good work he's begun in you. He knows that he has bought you with his precious blood. He knows that he, in joining you unto himself by faith, has sanctified you unto himself. You are his precious possession. His care for you is beyond comprehension. His love and tenderness towards you is beyond description. He is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. Our great older brother in the family of God is knit unto us with a bond that is stronger than any human tie, any blood relation. This vital connection of the living stones unto the chief cornerstone. It is all held together by the love of the Son, but also the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, verse 19, very similar language to what Peter uses. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built up upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That really is a beautiful thought, isn't it? That the Holy Spirit makes us his habitation. You would think of some um, beaten down house somewhere 
and a run-down part of the neighborhood that's been used as a meth lab that has been overcome with rats and cockroaches someplace that even the, uh, the health units are just afraid to even walk in. But you'd have to come to a habitation far more heinous, far more inhospitable in order to compare it unto our hearts by nature. And yet God, the Holy Spirit, the comforter and the advocate, he comes into such a habitation as our hearts. And he makes himself at home there. And he begins to refine and refurbish this home, begins to repair what's been damaged, begins to uh, cast out that which is unseemly. Such is the love of the Holy Spirit in the believer. We read in Luke 19, verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. You see, where we find ourselves in a trap of sin, ensnared in the temptation that has brought us into a kind of bondage and captivity, we imagine that when we return unto God in true repentance, we will be met with a frown. We will be met with anger. We will be met with contempt and shame. And yet the Bible says there's rejoicing in heaven. Do we imagine that the heart of God is cold unto the repentant? We have a completely wrong view, uh, much other than what God gives in his word. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not ashamed of believers, not ashamed of those who have cast themselves on the mercy of God in Christ. So it is that this is the foundation of our not being ashamed. Where someone gets into a deep and a terrible sin, one that involves a painful road, of repentance involves going to many people and confessing the wrong that they've done. Sometimes even believers are tempted to drastic action. Surely I need to run away and never be seen from again. Maybe I need to harm myself. Terrible temptations from the devil can creep in. The only thing that can give hope to sinners in such a condition, whether a sin of that severity or any other sin is the glorious hope of the gospel that God is merciful to the repentant. That he will not deal with us as we deserve, but as he has abundantly promised to do to the unworthy as he commends his love unto us in Christ Jesus, the one who was crucified for the guilty lawbreaker. As we've seen something of the implications as well as the blessing, I wish to close with the implications. The implications. I see primarily two implications that I wish to draw out from this verse. First would be this, the terrible doom of those who remain in unbelief. I would not want one who is still not believing in Jesus Christ to walk out of here with even a shred of hope. What do we read here? Wherefore it is contained in the Holy Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him 
shall not be confounded. If you are not a believer, how can you imagine that there's any hope for you? Ought it not to drive you to a state of desperation, knowing that that judgment day is coming? You shall be found on the left hand of Christ with the goats to be cast into the lake of fire where where the worm does not die. Oh, my heart breaks for you today. Would you not have some heartbrokenness for your own condition? Would you not say that this verse is not for me, but it is only for those who are believers? In the original context in which Peter is quoting from here, Isaiah 28, these words were spoken in a context of warning, warning the unrepentant. In Isaiah 28, which we read in verse 14, Wherefore hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem, because ye have said, We have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we at agreement? When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge." And under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Shall not make haste. Well, that was the original context. They will... If they are believers, they will not pass by this cornerstone in a mistaken judgment about its identity. Was that not what we covered in earlier sermon? The stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. There are those who disallow Christ. They they pass by him as just any other stone. Oh, there's just a stone in the background not to pay mine. No, this is the cornerstone. This is the central work of God. Anyone who would pass by here and give him no heed, they at that point are committing murder against their own souls. They, as it were, are those who are making lies their refuge. And though they make a covenant imagining that they can escape hell and death, yet at the same time, God promises that they will be lost if they make haste, if they pass on. As they make haste, as they pass by, as they hurry on with other things, making no time for the Lord Jesus Christ, they are ensuring that they will be those who are surely brought to shame on the great day. In Luke Luke 23, verse 35, as Jesus is being crucified, we read, The people stood beholding, and the rulers also saying with them, derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he be Christ, the chosen of God. If he be Christ, the elect of God. You may not imagine that you are mocking Christ today, that you are casting scorn upon him as though he were not the chosen one of God, as though he were not the chosen elect cornerstone. But I tell you, your case is no different if you remain in unbelief. It is a heinous, wicked, foul dishonoring of the Lord not to receive him in faith. 
Recognize that this, together with all your other sins, will be the greatest of the shames that are brought upon you when you stand before him. When you see him and you desire to flee away from him, that face which once was revealed to you in the tender mercies of the gospel promises will be to you as a fearful judge. And he will not count these things as a light matter. No, the greatest of the sins against him is refusing him in his gospel. Well, it's a terrible doom that is awaiting those who are in unbelief. But is it not such a sound comfort to those who are believers? You know, there are believers, true believers, who have gone to the cornerstone. They have received Christ as their Savior, but they receive such a small bit of comfort from that. Whatever they may put on as a good show before others, often there are terrible burdens and sorrows Deep within, I cannot believe that I am truly safe. I have no idea what will happen to me on that judgment day. You see, it actually is probably more common than we recognize that weak believers lack what's called assurance of their salvation. Listen to what Westminster Confession, Article 18 says. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God in a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Dear weak believer, do you not know that you may be assured of your salvation? If you have cast yourself on the mercy of Christ, you will never be put to shame. You see, your faith is not some great act which you perform, which earns you anything. Faith is an expression of our weakness and our neediness. It is a falling down, falling upon Christ, surrendering any works which we may do at the throne of his mercy, casting them all at the feet as just a great heap of vain things. And recognizing that we are just needy sinners. We fall down into the arms of Christ, recognizing that only he can support our weight. Is that not what Isaiah called him? A precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He will surely, certainly support your weight. The weight of your soul, the weight of your guilt, the weight of every burden and sorrow. If you cast your cares upon him, you may know that he cares for you. Isaiah 54 and verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. 
and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. The promises of Christ, dear one, are yea and amen for whoever will receive him. Yes, you know that you have a great many things in your life that do not measure up to the searching standard of God's justice. But in sincerity, you love him. In sincerity, you seek to walk according to his will. And you are sorrowful. And you are, are so ashamed of your sins. Know this, know this, that such who have this testimony in their hearts will pass through the judgment without any shame. The Lord Jesus Christ has covered you with his blood. His righteousness is your righteousness, and God looks upon you as though you'd never once sinned, as though you'd performed every duty. In the beloved, you are secure. Romans 5, verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. This is the hope of this. It carries you through your tribulations and trials, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. May it the Lord grants you by his spirit this firm assurance, which only he can give. And may we, each one of us, cast our cares.